Big Sky, Big Potential. In association with Mills and Reeve, this is Eastern Promise. Achieving more together. Welcome to the Eastern Promise podcast, our flagship of advocacy made in and for the East of England, bringing you the brightest and best of our region across science and technology, energy, the creative arts and enterprise. Cambridge Service Alliance, Cambridge Enterprise, Cambridge and Cambridge Innovation Capital, Innovate Cambridge. My guest today is at the start and the heart of all these organisations and many more besides. I'm Mike Rigby and in this week's episode, I'll be talking to the Senior Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Enterprise and Business Relations at the University of Cambridge, Professor Andy Neely. And finally, social enterprise with purpose above profit is a critical part of our social infrastructure. Let's share those closest to you in another big-hearted crowd sorcery. Google Andy Neely. That's N-E-E-L-Y. Go on, I'll wait. See? The sheer breadth and depth of organisations, initiatives and companies which Professor Andy Neely, Senior Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Enterprise and Business Relations at the University of Cambridge, either runs has started, or where he's a keyboard member, chairman or trustee, could keep this podcast occupied for the better part of a year, at least. And in my first faltering steps into the Cambridge ecosystem, most of the organisations I came across had Andy's involvement stamped into their very DNA. Cambridge Enterprise, Innovate Cambridge... Cambridge Innovation Capital, Cambridge Service Alliance, Cambridge and, the list goes on and on. It should therefore surprise no one that I jumped at the chance to interview Andy for the Eastern Promise podcast. And so, I arrived at the University of Cambridge's offices on a rather overcast September morning, feeling... A little starstruck, actually. Andy Neely, Pro Vice Chancellor for Business and what, what's the full title? I, I, I memorised so, it. So, so, so my, my full title now: Senior Pro Vice Chancellor for Enterprise and Business Relations. There you go. And I have to say, looking over everything, I've been looking at Cambridge Enterprise, Cambridge and and uh, Cambridge Service Alliance. Uh, and you, you, you get, you're everywhere. I, I talked to uh, the Mayor of Cambridge and Peterborough um, 
Nick Johnson, Dr. Nick Johnson, about you, and he sort of had this wry smile that you were popping up everywhere. And the first question is, and I alluded to this on a, a, a video that I put out the coming soon, how, when you get out of bed in the morning, does your head not explode with the sheer kind of magnitude of the potential around you that you sort of get to get involved in? How do you, sort of, how do you start the day, you know? So, I, well, first of all, it's a real privilege. I mean, I, I think the, one of the things I've loved about the role I'm in now at the university, I've been in this role just under seven years, um, mm-hmm. and I actually come to the end of my term reasonably soon in, in this particular role. Um, and it's a real joy to see what's going on across the university in different departments. You meet people who are doing really interesting things. There are fascinating students. There are great research projects, whether it's life sciences or materials or uh, the way we think about history or economics. There's, I mean, just such a raft of things happening. And in the wider ecosystem, uh, ditto. I mean, there are some really great startups and spin-out companies, not just from the university, actually, in the wider tech ecosystem uh, and life sciences in and around Cambridge. So I just, I'm just excited by it all. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit like being in a, a sweet shop and just going, oh, can I, can I go and have a look at that now, basically? Yeah. Actually, that's one of the things I love about doing this in a, in a much, much smaller way is that you should get to drop people emails and say, can I come and have a look and talk to you about it? And then you get to find out about these amazing things that are happening. But I, I just think I wouldn't know where to begin in an ecosystem like this. And I suppose you just have to have your ear to the ground and sort of pick out those things, start with the things that you know about that you're interested in that are close and then sort of slowly filter out into the wider ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I think particularly when it comes to the sort of Um, entrepreneurship innovation ecosystem an analogy I've been using more and more is that of a gardener I mean I don't I don't think that you can deliberately design and construct an innovation ecosystem and go like an engineer we're going to build it and Mm. it's going to look exactly like this I equally don't think that you let it completely uh, like a jungle just grow and randomly occur but I think increasingly actually when you look around the world this seems to me to be what more and more uh, groups are doing the gardener analogy is quite helpful because in a garden you let things grow and you let them develop but you decide where to weed and where to plant some new seeds Mm. and where to fertilize if you use fertilizer and so you're you're sort of tending and nudging something in a direction without trying to structure it and control it. And, and getting that balance right, I think, is really important in an innovation ecosystem. Well, we, we sort of had that on full display um, on the 11th of October this year with the Innovate Cambridge Summit, where they launched the Innovate Cambridge Strategy 2023. Now, what I noticed in the, sort of the opening thank you note of that document uh, was uh, that, that it talks about a, genu- generational, a generational opportunity to be seized. And I just wondered how you'd quantify and define that. And, and uh, for, for those outside Cambridge, you, you perhaps aren't as steeped in, in yeah. the ecosystem. Yeah. So Innovate Cambridge is really interesting. I mean, this has been a conversation that's been going on now for about 15 months. Um, and it started with a series of sort of small workshops, dinner discussions with different groups of people. So some of the venture capitalists, uh, some for businesses, some for local politicians or the civic leaders, some for the uh, universities, uh, some for the networks that exist and so on. And in essence, the the question we were asking people when we got them together was, if you think about uh, sliding door moments that have happened previously, what's fundamentally changed the way that Cambridge as a city works? 
Um, so you might think about the creation of the science park. You know, Trinity College founded the first science park in Europe 60-odd years ago. That's the Cambridge Science Park. Really important decision in terms of shaping how the tech ecosystem has developed in and around this city. Uh, AstraZeneca's decision to come and base themselves in Cambridge, really important decision around life sciences and what's happening in the life sciences sector. The university's policy around IP, we tend to be quite liberal around IP in this institution. It's, that's important in terms of attracting good faculty, but it also encourages spin-outs and start-up companies. Again, important in terms of shaping the ecosystem. So the question we're asking people is, what's the, you know, what, what are the sliding door moments that this generation has got that we should be thinking about stepping through that in 20 or 30 years' time, people will look back and say, oh, we are so pleased that that group those things. Mm. And that was really where the, the conversation started. There's then been a whole series of discussions, and in essence, there are, I, I guess there are two things I'd say about the Innovate Cambridge strategy. The first thing is the ambition is, say, how can we, in the next 10 years, have the same level of impact that we have had in the last 25? So that's around yeah. startup companies, and it's around venture capital in the system, and it's around having an impact on the world. You know, we, ultimately, the university is interested in making sure that we make the world a, a better place and contribute to society. So that's, that's one piece. How do we speed up that um, level of impact uh, and compress what took 25 years last time? How do we do in the next 10? And the three things that we think are really important to do that, the first is about getting the ecosystem to fire on all cylinders. So that's having the right capital. It's having the right places. It's having people with the right skills, etc. The second is making sure that the local population uh, benefit from and see that they're benefiting from yes, innovation. Yeah. And so it doesn't become a kind of, oh, there's a tech or a life sciences ecosystem over there, waving my hands and pointing yes. in different directions. <laughs> uh, and, you know, that, uh, and, and what that's done is just uh, increase the cost of housing and make congestion worse in the city because it's brought more people in. Actually, we, we need to think about the jobs that are being created, the employment opportunities that friends and family have, the, um, and also the way the innovation has changed people's lives. So, um, you know, cancer survival rates in Addenbrooke's Hospital are the best in the UK, and yeah. part of the reason for that is the research that goes on around early detection of cancer, and yeah. that's, that's improving people's lives. The voice recognition software in your phone, Alexi Siri, based on uh, Siri, based on software developed in the university, again improving the, the the way that people live their lives. And so, what we need to do is, is make it much more explicit and obvious to people how some of the fantastic things that are happening in the city are also improving not just the quality of our collective lives in the city, but across the uh, the UK and indeed across the world. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing I think is being more porous. So. There are comments made about Cambridge as the sort of, you know, the equivalent of Silicon Valley in the US. Or, but actually, we're a tenth the size of Silicon Valley. We're a tenth the size of Boston. And even if uh, with uh, the Cambridge 2040, Cambridge 2050, Michael Gove's plans around Cambridge, which we might come on to, even yes. if Cambridge grew significantly, we're still going to be relatively small in comparison to Boston and Silicon Valley. And so the way that you... Uh, start to compete at that sort of scale is by being more porous and connecting to other parts of the UK. So the Oxford-Cambridge um, arc is a, an important area to think about, the pan-regional partnership, or the uh, the link that we announced with Manchester as well. Yes. It's about how do you make connections 
So we have some lovely examples. There's a, a company called Pragmatic who is doing its R&D in Cambridge and doing the fundamental science around its new products, its inter-electronics, semiconductors. Um, uh, and its first factory, first manufacturing facility has been opened in Sedgefield in, near Durham. Yeah. And it's been opened there partly because there's something called the Centre for Process Innovation up there, which has got so the local skills um, around how you manufacture things are really good in that part of the country. So it makes sense for them to build their manufacturing activity and their supply chain in and around the Durham area, and they can do their R&D in Cambridge. That's a brilliant model, and we should yeah. be encouraging that to happen more and more. It's funny you mention that, because uh, one of the things I did on uh, the Eastern Promise podcast, which is kind of like our main advocacy and uh, tool for the region, uh, is to look at uh, the Norfolk Brex, particularly Thetford, and Snetterton, which is smack bang in the middle between Norwich and Cambridge, and say, OK, how can this area support the growth of Cambridge? Labs want to cluster in Cambridge. Get that, OK. But how can we enable that by saying that, OK, there's land at Snetterton Business Park available. Isn't that going to be cheaper, greener, bigger than what you're going to get on the Ark? Oh, not, no disrespect mm-hmm. to the Ark. I like the Ark. I, you know, and we had, when we had that, we had the head of... Bidwell's Oxford Camart team, Rob Hopp, would come along and give us yep. his, his sage, uh, sage counsel on, on perhaps how we, we take this a little further. And we are sort of pr- proceeding with that. And it's, it, it's a really interesting, I think, discussion to say. And lots of people have come on saying we want to be part of the discussion. As well as the new leader of Norfolk County Council, K. Mason Billig, who, said, who is very much in the, of the opinion that, yes, we need to engage and engage and, and, and see how we can collaborate. But... You, you brought me on in that in the, before I started splurging on about what, what we're doing to um, the Cambridge 2040 slash 2050 plans. And Peter Freeman was at the uh, Innovate Cambridge Summit, who was uh, candid about his um, his slight trepidation at being there and recognising the, the feeling slightly awkward about it. Now, I, I suspect I know the answer to this already, but to what extent are you confident that Cambridge? Um, its, its, its future will remain, the ecosystem's future will remain in the hands of Cambridge, in, in its own hands, and it won't be subject to, or it can resist well-intentioned tinkering from the centre. Um, so just, just one thing on the, on, on the arc, and I'll come to the Peter Freeman thing. I mean, for me, the arc doesn't, doesn't stop at Oxford or, and Cambridge. It actually needs to extend beyond those um, uh, across the UK. And I, I'm, I'm linked to that, actually. I mean, the arc... Some, in some people's minds, the arc is a million houses and a, and a transport infrastructure. For me, it's not. It's about a kind of innovation ecosystem. Yeah, that's, that. that's yeah. much more important now. Um, on, on, on Cambridge 2040, Cambridge 2050, um, this is a fantastic opportunity. You know, the, the reality yeah. is the eyes of government are on Cambridge um, and the surrounding area uh, and saying... This is a really special part of the UK. It's got an economy that's growing quickly. Um, it's got some really interesting startup companies. Firms are scaling up. There's a load of unicorns scattered around. So firms that are worth more than a billion uh, that have grown up out of the, uh, the, the in the related area. Um, and so central government is saying, oh, this is a really special place. We'd like, to, we'd like to free it and we'd like to see and support growth. The, yeah. the point I made at the, at the Innovate Cambridge event was I think we, sh- we, sh- we need to think... Sometimes growth is seen in a, in a, in a negative way um, and people worry about what it might mean. 
um, in terms of pressure on the infrastructure and hospitals and schools and so on. I think the way to think about this is much more sustainable prosperity, that actually what we want to do is see a rising tide for the city and the surrounding areas where the prosperity is A, shared amongst people, and B, is sustainable both economically and also from an environmental perspective. And so you need to think quite carefully about, therefore, where that sustainable prosperity comes from. In terms of central government, um, I think it's fantastic. Eyes are on Cambridge. I think, I think there's a really good conversation actually going on yeah. between central government and locally. Um, where So Peter Freeman was at the event. Uh, he's been up to lots of events locally and talking with lots of different stakeholders. Good, yeah. um, because ultimately, places are shaped by the people that, that live in those places and the things that those people want to do. And so I'm not sure, I mean, it's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit back to the kind of Gardner analogy. I'm not, I'm not sure that you can, with a sort of top-down hand, you can come along and say, that's what this particular city or group of people should do and expect everyone to jump and march in that direction. <laughs> yes. But you can think about, actually, where do I need to put investment? So do we need more transport infrastructure? And if so, what form does that take? Do we need more um, uh, health care? So there's plans around a children's and a cancer hospital uh, on the, the Cambridge Biomedical Campus, uh, which would build capacity um, in those areas. There's a whole host of things that you could choose to support and nurture in the way that you attend your garden. And I think central government can help us with some of those things by directing investment and support. Yeah. But ultimately, the decisions about what we do and how we do it and how the city grows has, have to be taken locally. And they have to be taken actually fairly democratically. I mean, the, so that's why it's so important that the civic leaders are involved in all of these processes and conversations. And there are really good conversations going on between good. the leader of the city council, the leader of South Cams and so on, and the, the central government offices. That's really good to know. And, um, I mean, that's, that was, I think, uh, what spurred me to look at the BRECS with Eastern Promise, is that that knowledge that the, the, the housing numbers obviously scared you know, scared the uh, scared the horses, as it were. And there's a, 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 I think there's a potential there to sort of lessen that. And, and, and with the, with the, the direct connections that there are in terms of transport, public transport, and and road um, between uh, there and and Cambridge, that's a, that's a great opportunity. But anyway, um, I a question here from Tim Robinson and and from me, obviously, of Tech East, who spoke very highly of you. What's your view of the wider east of England as an ecosystem? So I, I, I think that, I mean, ecosystems are really interesting um, because I think there is a, you, you can think of them at different sizes and scales. Um, and one of the things that makes Cambridge work quite well as an ecosystem is the relatively small size of the city and the fact that it's a highly connected city as well and so because it's small I will walk out of here and if I walk down King's Parade or walk across town I'll bump into people I know all the time and you, you're having conversations about what's happening or what their family to do I mean there's a whole host of things there are personal social connections as well as professional connections and that I think makes it a really rich place it, in, in terms of those interactions it also makes it uh, a rich place in terms of exchange of ideas um, and it also makes it an easy place to connect with others because if you want to go and talk to 
Herman Hauser or David Cleveley or Tony Cazarides or I mean we, we all know each other and so if you if you ask me I can do an introduction to any of those people quite easily and ditto vice versa so there's a, mm. there's a sort of but that's that's physically constrained if you then scale up to the east of England and you say how do you get that same level of connectivity I think it's actually quite difficult yeah. and so I think what you've got to think about is connected sets of local ecosystems um, and then uh, what matters is the connections between those local ecosystems. So Tim is a good example. Tim's well connected across the east of England. He knows lots of people. And he can be a key uh, node in a local ecosystem, but also then a, um, reach out to the other local ecosystems to make connections across yeah. the two. So in the case of Manchester, one of the things the Cambridge Angels are doing, so early stage investment uh, is they're now working with the Manchester Angels um, and just sharing notes on how they approach angel investing, how they support startup firms and so on. The, you're not going to end up with the Cambridge Angels, the Manchester Angels merging into form one big group of angel investors, but actually they can both focus on their local ecosystem, but then the connectivity between the two becomes really important. And so I think for the east of England, what we need to do is make sure that we've got really strong local uh, innovation ecosystems, often around uh, particular geographies, particular cities, um, and then worry about the connectivity between them and how we get good exchange of ideas and people between those ecosystems. Yeah, I mean, we uh, um, recently did a, a tour of the Quadrum Institute in Norwich and, and Tammy Dugan, who's a yep. member of your team, yep. came along and, and, and took the tour with us yep. and uh, gave us her views afterwards. And yep. that, uh, Yeah, so that was, that was a really good, as you say. Um, put her in touch now with the, the team there. Um, yeah. that's, that's, that's well, really the Quadrum Institute is a lovely example because it's, it's got a fantastic capability. It's, it's a world-leading place. Um, and, that, and, that, and often in terms of successful ecosystems, that's what you need is those kind of anchor institutions around which you can build the successful ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes I, I feel that there's a, a, a reticence in the rest of the region to sort of be active and, and, and my, my philosophy has always been not to be deterred by the fact that Cambridge seems sort of impenetrable and, and, and remote and just sort of get in there and get stuck in, go to things, meet people, make those introductions and, and uh, it all kind of spirals on. And, and uh, it's been just one of the greatest professional pleasures I've had is just getting into this ecosystem, meeting people, getting those connections and now... When I do things on on social media, the the people who will comment there's almost there's as many, if not more, from Cambridge than there are from Norwich and and and, and Norfolk and Suffolk. Um, it, it's, it, yeah, I mean, I think I think that one of the things about the Cambridge ecosystem is it can it it sometimes can from outside uh, appear to be impenetrable, but you're you're absolutely right. It's actually just going and participating in some of the events, joining some of the networks. You find that people are really quite generous with their time once you're inside that ecosystem, and there's not really barriers to getting in. It's just a case of stepping through the door and saying, "I want to come and be part of this conversation." Mm. And I think certainly regionally, there are lots of small uh, sort of individual projects collaborating, and it's I think it's a, it's contingent on certainly people like myself and, and and all of us really to turn that into some kind of wider narrative, so people understand that it is happening. You don't have to worry about it; it's taking care of itself. Um, now, we had last week uh, on the Eastern Promise podcast, Joe Graziano of Growth EQ talked about the, certainly the, about sea uh, level executive search and uh, the importance of that being driven by data. 
And that seems to be a really strong thread running through everything you've done. You've done ANMUT, as we've mentioned, the Cambridge Service Alliance. Technology is transforming, rapidly transforming the, the way we are using data. So where would you say we are at uh, in terms of the ability of, of most businesses, particularly SMEs, let's say, um, to... Um, interpret, have reliable, retrievable data they can interpret and use properly to actually benefit them, their customers, their business? So it's a really interesting question. I mean, my, my, across the course of my career, I started out, my early research was on um, key performance indicators and how you got the right metrics to measure success of organisations that aligned with the strategy of those businesses. And of course, that's then all around the data you can access. And as you say, a number of things I've done over the years have been, data has been a sort of common theme that's run through them, whether it's the way that manufacturing firms use data to change their business models, which is the service alliance work, or in the case of Anna, we're, we're doing a lot of work around how do you value data as an asset and understand its worth, and therefore where you should invest to improve the data. I think across... Uh, the organisations I see, it's really varied, actually. So uh, some organisations, particularly those that were born digital, i.e. created relatively recently, have the enormous fortune of being built and created in a world where a lot of the structures around uh, accessing data, collecting it... Uh, moving it around the organisation, I mean, you just automatically put those in place. So if you think about the, you know, the way that Amazon uses data um, or Apple uses data, some of those organisations are incredibly sophisticated. As I say, they were, they were fortunate in that they were born digital and so they built their whole business around mm-hmm. a, a different framework. If you take a place like the university, yeah, Cambridge University, was, that, yeah. was born 800 plus years ago, uh, we lived in a very different world then. And we've grown up over the years with, through different phases of technology, where, you know, one stage it was all, everyone had individual databases and contact lists and so on. And, and some of those still exist and they get layered on with other bits of software. And so it's, it actually is much more complex in some of the organisations that have been around a long time. I think generally... Um, organizations are aware of uh, the power that, that of data for them and are striving to get access to better data for a number of different reasons. So I think, you know, first of all, if you've got really good data, you can use it to make clearly much better decisions inside your organization. So there's something about your own operating model and how I you know where I choose to allocate resources, how um, I make particular choices to do specific things. All of those kind of issues are increasingly reliant on having good data to run the organisation more efficiently, basically. I think there's then a piece for data, which is about actually data, good data also gives you really interesting insight into your customers um, and what they are doing, thinking, feeling, how they're reacting to your organisation. And, and there are some really rich examples. One of the, um, the projects I'm involved in is trying to take uh, qualitative data, so statements that people make, as well as quantitative data numbers through things like the Net Promoter Score, to really understand how 
how customers feel. So the net promoter score is a really common way of measuring mm-hmm. organizational performance. And it, it basically looks at how, how likely people are to recommend your organization to others. Um, often when people uh, get a net promoter score, they've also asked some qualitative statements. You know, how do you feel about it? And, the, and people will describe stuff. And one thing we've been doing is taking both of those and saying, well, look, someone's got, a let's say, an 8 on the net promoter score. It's out of 10, but 8 out of 10. But then when you look at the qualitative comments, you find that there's a positive phrase in there, but there are three slightly critical phrases. That 8 should really be an 8 plus 1 minus 3 uh, to modify the tone of the, the mm-hmm. number a little bit. We wrote an article uh, two or three years ago now in, in the Harvard Business Review talking about the way in which that form of analysis allows you to better predict the likelihood that you're going to retain a customer than just relying on the net promoter score as a straightforward number. Um, And so there's all sorts of sophisticated things going on in that space. And then the third thing that people are doing with data is using it to rethink the way that their business model operates itself. And so um, I've done a lot of work in the service alliance, particularly with manufacturing firms who who um, are doing... uh, what's called servitization of manufacturing, so selling services and solutions rather than products. Because most, in many cases, actually we don't necessarily want or need the product. What we need is the outcome the product will deliver. So Mm. the car, actually it's not that I need a car necessarily, but I need the ability to get from A to B. And so if you could offer me a service or a solution which met my transport needs, which meant I didn't have to have necessarily my own car, um, I wouldn't put as much capital investment into the car. I wouldn't be sitting there in the garage when you're not using it as a kind of waste of resource. You could actually you could have a much more sophisticated model. And so people are thinking about how do we change our model to offer a service or a solution, yeah. and data enables a load of that. So I think it's enormously varied across organisations. Depends a bit on age and maturity of the organisation. But I, as you roll forward, I struggle to think of a business or a public sector organization that actually won't need to get its data into a state where it can use it much better and those that 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 fail to make that transition fail to get their data in the right state will be in a, a, a competitive disadvantage over the years yeah absolutely i think uh, i'll just say this that as part of my sort of preparation, I studied the Cambridge Service Alliance 2021 report. I think I got my yep. printout in the back. And in that were some really brilliantly written articles, pieces, uh, by your colleagues on the Alliance uh, about explaining uh, at some level like myself who, doesn't, who needs, knows, knows he needs to do it but is putting it off um, endlessly. But, you know, explaining why that's important, explaining the advantages of a good grasp of your data and how important, the, the, the kind of the five ways that that's going to be important in the future. I really recommend uh, people looking it up because it is a, a really, really fascinating read. Um, in Cambridge and and the wonderful Harriet Fear, you have a dynamic front door to the city for the, the, global, uh, the global economy, for global investors. Uh, in Cambridge Enterprise, you've got a means of delivering economic impact, commercialisation, knowledge transfer um, for the University of Cambridge. Loads of really rich networking groups, Cambridge Wireless, uh, you've got Cambridge Cleantech, etc., etc. Uh, we've talked about Innovate Cambridge. What does Cambridge need? What don't you have that would really benefit you? 
Um, so uh, yeah, this, this is back to the question of how do you get the, the innovation ecosystem firing on all cylinders. And I think there are two areas uh, that, in terms of capital that we worry about at the moment. So the first is around proof of concept funding. So if you think about the way the UK operates, we, we've got um, UKRI, uh, UK Research and Innovation, that will fund research projects that are early stage. Um, the venture capital, the angel investors will come in when you've got something that's, you know there's a, a, a fit with the market, you've maybe got a prototype for the product. But there's a gap between the two when the research stops and when you and before you've got something that really is investment ready, and that's where the proof of concept piece comes in. A lots of people struggle to to leap that particular gap. Yeah. So that's one area that I think, not just here. I think generally we like. No, no, that's the second. The second area in terms of capital is um, the scale up capital. So we've over the years we've done quite a lot in and around Cambridge. So we've got Cambridge Enterprise, which can make seed fund investments in firms up to about £3 million. We set up Cambridge Innovation Capital just about 10 years ago, and that does Series A and Series B, so larger-scale investments. But when you really start to grow the business and you want to set up in multiple countries and maybe have you know manufacturing sites around the world and various things, you need significant capital at that point. And the UK as a whole struggles with that what's called the scale-up capital um, and often people end up going and looking overseas to, mm. to access that that's something government's aware of uh, and there are all sorts of discussions about pension reforms and so on to try and free up <coughs> that scale-up capital uh, <coughs> excuse me so that's on the, the, the capital side other things Cambridge needs uh, we don't have a great conference facility um, you're limited I mean the colleges can put on conferences academic conferences but if you wanted to hold a conference for 500 people or 1000 people there's not, there's not many ways you can do that some organisations, ARM does one where they book two or three colleges and, and host in different bits of the, the college system but you've yeah. not got a room where you can put 1000 people for an event um, you Potentially, you could do things in the corn exchange and so on, yeah, but then yeah. it's not. But then there's not breakout rooms for it. Lots of places have large-scale conference facilities, so that's something that um, we would uh, look at. I think there's, and then there's always things you could improve. I mean, I think that I think the transport infrastructure is something that uh, we need to continue to work on. Um, availability of affordable housing from a university perspective. We're building. We've built the first phase of Eddington, and there are two more phases. Mm. And the reason we're building Eddington is to create affordable housing for key workers and a nice community for people to live in, basically. Um, so the, the, there's, there's always things. I mean, I, I, this is probably true of any city or town or village. Yes. There's always a list of things. You go, well, what we could do with next is, is X and Y and Z. So. Yeah, that's, that's so true. You're absolutely right. Um, I think you alluded to this earlier, but can and should the way Cambridge has evolved, the way Cambridge does things, can it be copied? Is, 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 this, is, the secret, is there a secret source where if you've got the recipe, you could replicate it? Or is it just a completely unique set of historical happenstance and things that have just happened in the way that they have happened that have gifted Cambridge what it has? Whereas, you know, it will happen differently for other places. But there's just seems something about Cambridge that seems to be, you know, you've, you've got 
Nobel laureates as, as many as, more than anywhere except Harvard, I think. Um, more than many countries. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that the, the thing that's interesting, um, you, you can't copy it completely. I don't. I don't. I, I think you have to understand. Yes. In any, this is true of a firm, it's organization, city that. History matters, and and decisions that have been made previously shape the the options and sort of paths that are open to you in the future, and so on. So I think there are some. So you have to understand the historical context a bit. But I, I do think, I mean, you you listed a load of the initiatives and activities in Cambridge. I do think there's an organising structure to them, um, which actually is similar. When I look at other ecosystems around the world, other successful innovation ecosystems, and and my description of this is that at the base. There's a think of a knowledge engine. So this is all about an engine that creates lots of ideas and insights. And for us, that's the universities, uh, the local firms, the people in them are constantly coming up with new ways of doing things, new ideas for companies, completing research projects. So it's a kind of just a boiling pot of ideas spilling out. There are then three vertical pillars that sit on that. So the first one is about support, and that's all about finance and IP, basically. So Mm -hmm. if you're in the university and you come up with an interesting idea, you can go to Cambridge Enterprise. Cambridge Enterprise will help you decide how valuable the idea is, if it's worth patenting, they've got funding to patent the idea, they can then license the idea to others, or they could invest in a startup company, so they've got seed funds to invest small amounts of capital to help you get going. If you're successful and you grow, um, Cambridge Enterprise can only invest up to about £3 million in a startup, um, and then uh, Cambridge Innovation Capital, or Amadeus or somebody else comes in and mm-hmm. says, no, we'll do the next stage of investment with you. And so uh, as you grow, there's a, a source of finance that can grow with the firm. The second pillar is about space. So as well as the capital, um, we've got all sorts of spaces. So idea space is a lovely example. Yes, like my sort of first introduction to the you know, Benjamin Hartley and the, yeah. the first introduction to the ecosystem. Yeah, so idea space, if you're starting a new organisation, whether it's for profit or not, you can join idea space and, you're, and you take a desk in idea space. But you're not really renting a desk. You're joining a community of 60 other entrepreneurs mm. who are thinking about their startups. And so it becomes a self-help community. And we've got an idea space in West Cambridge, one in the middle of town, one on the biomedical campus. Mm-hmm. Um, Eagle Labs perform a similar function. Yep. As you grow a little bit, um, you might move out of idea space and into the Bradfield Centre or St John's Innovation Centre. And there there's modular offices. So in the Bradfield Centre, you can get an office for three people or six people or nine people. Or, and as you grow, you might add a bit more space. When you get to about 30 people, you're too big for the Bradfield Centre and you go off and take a floor in one of the commercial buildings Mm. somewhere, one of the science parks. And so the space is also flexible and you can take more space as you need it and as you successfully grow. And then the third pillar, support space and then skills is the third one. And that's about giving people the right skills for innovation entrepreneurship. So the business school runs programs and the Maxwell uh, um, Centre runs programs, uh, Impulse program, for example, for physical scientists thinking about startups. The local firms have got lots of talent in them, lots of skills that they also you know, will allow some of the staff to go and become non-execs on the boards of some of the startups to bring in some of the talent they need. So the skills piece. 
And then across the top, I think of connected Cambridge, and that's all the networks that exist. And so if you're into the Internet of Things, you join Cambridge Wireless. If you're into life sciences, you join One Nucleus. Um, if you're into clean tech, you join Cambridge Clean Tech. Uh, in the university, sorry, I didn't understand. In the university, we've got Epoch, which is the entrepreneurial postdocs of Cambridge. Yeah. Um, so we've got five thousand plus postdocs. Um, they're not all going to go to faculty positions. Some yeah. want to start up a firm, so they they hang out at Epoch. And then there are people that are in more than one of those networks, and so you get somebody in Cambridge Wireless and in Epoch. Um, and so then they meet somebody else in Epoch who says, oh, I'm interested in Internet of Things, and they introduce them to Cambridge Wireless or the yeah. right people. And so that, that sort of connected ecosystem. And so when I look at the range of activities and initiatives that are going on both within the university and in the wider ecosystem, I think they fit in those five buckets of either driving the knowledge engine, providing support, space or skills, or that connected Cambridge bucket. What then happens is there's constant innovation in the innovation ecosystem. So people are forever coming up with new things where they say, we don't have a, an X. So accelerators, we launch Start Codon, which is a life sciences accelerator and deep tech labs um, three or four years ago. And the reason we launched them was because we thought actually we needed a structured program um, to help early stage firms in life sciences and deep tech. So they get added into the ecosystem. Um, and so because you get this constant innovation in the innovation ecosystem, it makes it stronger and stronger. And as a consequence of that, lots is happening. And because lots is happening, it becomes quite a, a safe place to do risky things is a, yes, a, a the, famous quote. The tagline, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and because you, you know, actually, if you try something that doesn't work, there's another 10 opportunities you can go to. So people are willing to take a risk in that kind of ecosystem. And so if I was trying to, I wouldn't copy Cambridge, but if I was looking at another ecosystem, you know, sitting in Norwich and saying, right, what, what's Norwich missing? I would be looking at it through that lens and going, how good is the knowledge engine? How good is the support structure, the skills structure, the space? How good is the connected uh, Norwich piece? And then go, oh, my tending in my garden now is I want to put a bit more effort into the... Um, the support because we need more capital in Norwich or, wh or wh whatever the answer might be basically so I'd be I'd be using that framing to think about how I would try and nurture the ecosystem you've, you've actually brilliantly what you've done is is uh, help me structure um, an event we're doing in February in Norwich um, tied into the site Norwich Nights Festival which is uh, going to be at the Quadrum Institute and looking at how we take the assets particularly around food health food science related to the gut health work you know goes on there and uh, bring in industry, so Condimentum, which, is, which makes Coleman's mustard now, uh, have one of only three mustard mills in the world, mm -hmm. and it's a fantastic facility, we've toured it. Um, Dave Martin's going to come and be on one of our roundtables, and we're going to... Those are the questions we're going to address. What do we need to do to... Where are we, and what do we need to do to turn into you know a really powerful global hub for food innovation food science we've got the john innes center the norwich research part right there we've got the food enterprise part right there they're you know very close together we've got into bring honestly local government that has a role to play and, and bring them all together and say where do we want to be how, and where are we where do we want to be how do we get from a to b 
and and you bring up the and, and it's the, the investment and the capital access to capital is a very interesting point as well as you said the access to space um, and it's, it's I think it's really interesting times and, and, and learning from some of what uh, you know Cambridge's experiences I think is really valuable but just not in not in a sense to try and replicate it as you say but to try and see where those it's successful links and connections and the clear structure has been made and mm-hmm. trying to use that use that as a kind of base uh, a base camp to set off on, on, a, on a journey of its own but I think one of the, the joys of this is as Eastern promised what I decided on from the start is not to try and push everything into a blob an East of England blob because the culture doesn't want that and you know the, 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 the strength I think is in the diversity of those that those locations, Suffolk, Norfolk, Cambridgeshire, Cambridge, Norwich, Ipswich, Colchester, um, and to respect those the, the local feel of it all. And, and as I say, coming to Cambridge is always really exciting because it has that kind of crackle of purposeful activity in the air that I remember from from being in Parliament when I worked in Parliament. The lots of people moving quickly and and bit thinking big thoughts and, and and trying to make a difference. And I think that's that's one of the things that I really recognise and feel being in Cambridge, that crackle of activity. And it's really, it really is a joy to be to be here. So uh, Professor Andy Neely, Senior Pro Vice Chancellor, thank you very much for your time. It's been a joy. I wish we could carry on, but you're a busy man. Uh, thank you for your time today. Been a pleasure. My huge thanks to Andy, not just for that fascinating insight into enterprise and innovation across our region, but also for the incredibly hard work he's put in across so many initiatives promoting his city and the east of England. An additional hat tip to Tim Robinson of Tech East for his excellent question. And now... We are so blessed in this region that so many of you wonderful people are out there fighting the good fight and taking a stand for those less fortunate than ourselves. However you choose to make your contribution and whomever you choose to serve through that contribution, let's share the magic in an appropriately seasonal... Crowd Sorcery. Yes, crowd sorcery. Now, have you noticed the slightly gentler music? More in keeping, I think. And inspired by the empress of social enterprise networking, Rachel Hales of GetSynergized.com, and to atone for not being able to attend her fantastic recent event, let's see what wonderful social enterprises and charities make your individual heart swell. Providing... A gallon of goodness is Deborah Dawson, business development guru for our most excellent friends at Mills and Reeve. Let's celebrate her priceless picks. There's red to green, turning the red lights green, supporting adults with learning disabilities and autism to learn life, employment and education skills in Cambridgeshire. That's red2green.org. Two being the number two, red2green.org. Meanwhile, Cambridge Cyrenians support people in Cambridge who are experiencing or at risk of homelessness, empowering them to fulfil their potential, whatever their background or past. 
cambridgecyrenians.org.uk and you spell Cyrenians C-Y-R-E-N-I-A-N-S. Meanwhile, Cambridge Community Arts provides high-quality, creative learning accessible to all, with a vision of healthier communities empowered by their own creativity. It's their mission to support personal growth and improved health through quality creative arts activities. That's camcomarts.org.uk. C-A-M-C-O-M-M-A-R-T-S.org.uk. The Papworth Trust offers essential support and care to disabled and older people and to their families and carers, from a few hours a week to daily support all year round. They help people adapt and repair or improve their homes and to find any grants and benefits they may be entitled to. They have a wide range of leisure and learning activities available, from sports and youth clubs to life skills and qualifications. Find out more at papworthtrust.org.uk. Caring Together's vision is a world with no unpaid carer in crisis, isolated or struggling alone. They work across our region, and you can join them in working to make this vision a reality for people who are looking after a family member or friend. Visit their website at caringtogether.org. Talk to us about anything, says Centre 33, Cambridgeshire and Peterborough. They believe young people should be listened to without judgement. So should we all. Centre 33 have been offering free and confidential information and support to young people for over 40 years. They support any young person up to the age of 25 with their mental health, caring responsibilities, housing, sexual health and more. Centre33.org.uk and the 33 is in numbers. And give your best. An award-winning tech-for-good social enterprise offers the first circular platform of its kind where people and brands donate clothes online so refugee women and children can shop for free with the agency and dignity they deserve. They turn donating into gifting and empower through choice. That's at giveyourbest.uk. That, that is correct. I haven't missed anything out. It's giveyourbest.uk. Moved by this are ah, Give Your Best, who have responded. Thanks for the recommendation, Deborah. Likewise, Deborah. That's less a shout-out, more a sustained yodel. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, another friend of the show is Adam Peed, business development strategist for Inuti, talent acquisition and recruitment expert, life science and workplace solutions. There are many wonderful examples, says Adam. However, I think the feed in Norwich is one I love. Absolutely spot on, Adam. And, as the feed says on their own website, By the power of food! The feed's mission is to empower communities in Norwich, ensuring each and every person has the support to eat well, live well and feel connected. Thefeed.org.uk The feed are wonderful people doing absolutely delicious work. Tarquin Bennett-Coles, another pal of this very podcast. Senior partner at SCI Partners. Advisor for Little Bean Journey Limited. Pro bono mentor for the Homerton Changemakers. And careers in healthcare supporter for the MBA and EMBA students at the Judge Institute. Tarquin salutes Cambridge Rape Crisis Centre, which offers free specialist support to women and girls across Cambridgeshire who have been subjected to rape and sexual violence, no matter 
when that abuse happened. Their website, cambridgerapecrisis.org.uk Tarquin also highlights Beacon for Rare Diseases, a UK-based not-for-profit that offers patient group trainings to help often small and voluntary organisations to form, grow and professionalise. It's through Beacon's events and trainings that patient groups have the opportunity to connect and collaborate with others across the rare disease space. Their website, rarebeacon.org. Speaking personally, can I interject at this point the excellent work of Dr Samantha Fox, thrice an interviewee on this very podcast herself and director of the Youth STEM Award CIC, that's STEM, with an extra M on the end for medicine. The Youth STEM Awards think the Duke of Edinburgh Awards for science. You can find them at ysawards.co.uk. Hannah Wooler, one of our panellists, our very recent heritage decarbonisation extravaganza, runs non-profit architecture practice Matter of Place Architects. To find out more about them, go to mop-a.co.uk. That's mop-a.co.uk. Meanwhile, the Concrete Rose Collective devotes itself to providing first-class support that responds to the needs of young people, particularly in the fields of accommodation and education. That includes care leavers, those at risk of homelessness, unaccompanied asylum seekers and young parents. These are nurturing places in host homes that include exceptional levels of wraparound support for hosts and young people alike. You can find out more about their work at concreterose.co.uk. Lastly, our dear friend Nigel Cushion, mentor, speaker and chair of Nelson Spirit, offers simply Ted. Bear Admiral and mascot of the social impact business bearing the name of Admiral Horatio Nelson. Ted is a powerful advocate indeed, Nigel, and also very cute. I mean, look at the widow sailor, Oh, <clears throat> Yes, thank you so much for those excellent, excellent suggestions. That's only a snapshot of the many wonderful organisations all across the east of England, doing brilliant work to help the vulnerable and the disadvantaged to protect nature and support causes close to you. Eastern Promise salutes you all. And that's all we have time for on episode 83 of the Eastern Promise podcast. Yes, I know, I said there would be the Accessible Science Talks from the John Innes Conference Centre, but, you know, they've been moved into an episode of their very own. All that remains is for me to thank Professor Andy Neely, Senior Pro-Vice-Chancellor for Enterprise and Business Relations at the University of Cambridge, to thank all my crowd sorcerers and dear old Darth Vader himself, Warlord of the Woofers, terror of the tweeters engineer 49 and thank you most of all to you for listening i really am really grateful to have your company i shall be back next week when you can join us for parts three and four of our occasional series focusing on the capacity of the norfolk brex to support the growth of cambridge 
recorded on location at Snetterton Business Park. Join me for that in just seven days' time. Until then, bye for now. To hear other episodes of the Eastern Promise podcast and to find out more about what we do, go to our website at easternpromise.org.uk. Eastern Promise is a Priors Croft production in association with Mills and Reeve. Achieving more together. <laughs>